Picture this, five Democrats and five Republicans sit down at a dining table, chatting as they dig into bowls of red and blue spaghetti, just making small talk. About 30 minutes into their conversation, they crack open a bottle of wine and start talking politics. Everyone has a different view, but their discussion is civil. Everyone listens to one another, learns from each other, and begins to understand where each person is coming from. No one at the table tries to change each other's minds on policy issues. And at the end of the night, when the political talk is concluded, they enjoy a purple cobbler dessert before saying their goodbyes. What if I told you that dinners like these have actually happened over 100 times among people and communities across our country? That there were civil discussions about politics between complete strangers from opposite sides of the political spectrum over bowls of spaghetti. Since 2016, artist and social sculptor Philippa Hughes has been in the business of cultivating these discussions with the aim of combating polarization. And it all started with her simple desire to understand. Three days after the 2016 election, like many people on my side of the aisle, I just was very frustrated and upset really by the result of the election. And so my instinct was to find out why that happened and what can I do about it? Like I'm kind of an action oriented person. And so I just invited Trump voters over to my house for dinner. And I didn't do it as a project. It just began as purely curiosity and an effort to understand. And then just kept growing from there. For the first couple of years, I did it around my dinner table. I cooked the dinners myself and I learned how to be a better moderator, facilitator along the way. You know, I'm not trained in that. But after a couple of years, I received some pretty decent funding so that I was able to turn it into a project and then go around the country organizing these dinners. I went to Anchorage, Alaska. Like that's how far away I went. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it just was a really cool experience to be able to have those kind of conversations in so many different kinds of communities. When we first embarked on this research about polarization in our global communication survey, we were fairly certain we would find evidence of a great divide between the right and the left in our country. And we hoped that maybe we could come up with some scalable solutions that we can implement as communicators. Turns out having dinner together is a great place to start. Philippa's work with the Looking for America project, as it's called, has gained national attention. Her dinner series was featured in the Washington Post last year, and she's given talks at educational institutions like the University of Michigan. This week, our discussion will serve up some valuable insights into how communications professionals might bridge the great political divide and ultimately encourage bipartisan collaboration. I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future. I'm really excited to talk to you today. At USC, at the Annenberg School, we have been researching polarization for the past year. And you have, for the past four years, been experiencing polarization. So the intersection of our two experiences should be enlightening, I hope, and interesting to our listeners. You read our report. You saw some of our predictions and our calculations about polarization. Where, from your experience, where do you think 
this level of polarization that we're experiencing now comes from? What has caused it? Oh my gosh, um, that's a pretty big question, Fred. Um, there's a really great book out that maybe was like a year ago, it was published by Ezra Klein called Why We're Polarized. Mm-hmm. And he goes through sort of the historical narratives around it. And you know, he's very specific about a lot of the research around why we're polarized. You know, where he kind of lands is that our polarization essentially began decades ago. Like you can point to the civil rights movement in the 1960s when the parties started separating because you know, of their ideologies around civil rights. Because before that, the parties were almost kind of the same. And so after civil rights, they started you know, polarizing. And not everybody necessarily thinks polarizing is, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just when it turns into extremism is when it becomes a bad thing, but it's good for the parties to have defined differences. And I know this is a big question to ask, but what did you learn from meeting with all these people about polarization and about the the different views that people hold today? Again, learned so much um, about the way people interact with each other, especially when, if you take away the political label of you're a Democrat and you're a Republican, people do actually want similar things for for themselves and for their families and for their communities. And the second you put the political label on it, suddenly that's where the polarization occurs. We've just kind of almost, I feel like almost become brainwashed into believing that this is the way we have to think because of the label. So that's one thing that really has stuck out to me. And do you find that when you're talking to Democrats and Republicans that they typically hold a set of values or a set of views that are prescribed by that label? To some extent, yes. When I really thought about the way we use language, like the same words can mean different things to people who are polarized, who are you know, extreme in their views. And so, for example, like when we say, I value freedom, it's, it seems like that's a pretty straightforward word, except we interpret that so differently across the political spectrum. I think at our core, we do have very similar values. We all do care about freedom to some extent, the, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all care about that. But what we mean by that can be very different. So I'm really struggling about how we identify the value and the principles and then how we describe them so that we're all kind of talking about the same thing. When we conducted our survey right after the election, we asked people whether they thought polarization would decrease or increase under the new administration. And the vast majority said it was going to either stay the same or increase. Are you seeing that same trend happening? Yes, I absolutely am. Um, and, and, you know, I'm speaking anecdotally from the conversations that I've had, because if you had asked me the same question six months ago or a year ago, I would have been much more optimistic about the possibility of decreasing polarization. But right now, I do think it's at an all-time high. I feel a little bit uneasy about how we're going to depolarize. And you attack this problem at a very grassroots level handful of people from each side of the political equation at a dinner party. And I was listening to some of your YouTube videos, and it was interesting how you evolved that conversation. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you changed the format so you didn't start talking about politics, but you 
did that a little later in the conversation. I thought that was interesting. I really tried to adapt as I went along. After every dinner, I would try something different based on something that might've gone wrong at the other dinner. I'm interested in grassroots and real conversations between people and, and actually building relationships between people who would not normally meet. And so that's sort of the goal I have with every dinner is how can we have a better conversation how can that conversation lead to a better relationship? And so that's why each time I would try different things. For example, like at that first dinner, people came in the door, we didn't even know each other. And we started arguing about politics literally right from the first moment. And that didn't get us very far because we didn't even know each other. So that's why like, and the next one, I instituted a rule, like we cannot talk about politics for 30 minutes. We talk about the movie you just saw, anything like normal conversation. So then at least you know who you're talking to first. But that has really evolved more now into using the arts of all different kinds, music, poetry, and trying to use the arts as a way to spark and frame conversations and to make the conversations more interactive, make the conversations more geared towards telling personal stories rather than throwing facts and talking points at each other. And so that's where I am right now is really trying to build dialogue around personal narratives. Did you find that if people knew each other personally a little bit more than they were more likely to listen to one another's opinions? Absolutely. Because now, because of our polarization, we don't even think of the other side as human. We always see our social media avatars. And so, you know, when you dehumanize somebody, it's easier to be angry and violent. I mean, there's actual social sciences is that, you know, it's very difficult to to commit violence against another human being. It's just not in us unless we dehumanize them. And that's, you know, that's what dictators do. They dehumanize the other so that they can rally the forces to commit violent acts. So polarization actually dehumanizes the person on the other side of the equation. Yes. And therefore it makes it easier to dislike them or disagree with them because they're, they're less than you are. That's exactly right. Once people got to know each other personally, how did that affect their expression of their politics with each other? The goal, of course, is always to understand. And in fact, I'm very adamant that you know, you should not come into this conversation looking to persuade anybody. Yeah. Because I do think that, you know, when you go in with that attitude, it's actually kind of disrespectful. You have to go in with the attitude of, I am willing to have my mind being opened up and I want people to understand me and I want to understand others. So that's the crux of having these kinds of conversations. I really emphasize that because I think you know, often people will ask me like, you know, does anybody's mind get changed? I'm like, that's not the goal. Like, in fact, that's literally against the rules <laughs> for, for these conversations. In fact, conversations geared toward relationship building, because we can't like do anything if we're not in relationship. We can't find solutions if we can't even have a relationship with a person. Right. And, and at the moment, polarization seems so bad that there's an inability to even discuss these issues. Well, you've heard people say like, I can't talk to that person or I'm unfriending them on Facebook. You know, we all have heard people say that. Speaking of Facebook, how do you see social media as a contributor to this overall level of polarization we're experiencing? Yeah, I mean, that's tough because, you know, I don't think social media 
is an inherently bad thing. Like we can use social media for good and not evil, but it's that algorithm thing. Like, have you seen that movie, The Social Dilemma? Yes. Like it just terrified me until I saw that and then started looking into it a little bit more. I just did not fully understand what those algorithms were doing, like literally pushing us further into extremist groups, only showing us things that, you know, they thought that we wanted to see. So then you become more ensconced in your bubble. It's those social media algorithms that are really difficult, which is driven by, you know, the profit motive for social media, you know, advertising sales. So, you know, when the profit motive is literally to keep us polarized, social media is to blame in that respect. So how do we change the profit incentive? How do we incentivize positive forward visionary views of how we can actually work together and not separately. I hear what you're saying, and it's almost like your dinners were the opposite of social media, because social media, the person on the other end is anonymous. Why is the face-to-face so much more effective than any other kind of communication? Well, I mean, again, there's a lot of social science that says that, you know, if you look into somebody's eyes, like it's it actually creates more empathy between people. It reminds me, a few years ago, there was this piece in the Modern Love column of the New York Times, and it was called 36 Questions to Make Somebody Fall in Love with You. But basically, after you answered the 36 questions, you were instructed to stare into the other person's eyes for four minutes. And it was based on a scientific study that said that if you stared into somebody's eyes for four minutes, you, know, you would create a relationship with them. Like there's just something that happens in your brain when you're looking directly into somebody's eyes that creates a connection between people. And at your dinners, did you ask people to stare into each other's eyes? Yes. So I tried that a couple of times, <laughs> um, but I only did it for one minute because four minutes feels like a long you know, time a day. You know? So we did it for a minute, a couple of times. And even that was just felt like interminable. It was so hard to do. But I I don't know. I think it kind of worked. And did you find overall that people were more open-minded after these dinners that you invited them to than they were beforehand? I mean, I believe that they were. I will say that one sort of failing is that there were some people who came to multiple dinners, but for the most part, people only came once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the end, inevitably at the end of every meal, people like say, you know, that was so amazing. Like, I just feel so optimistic and you know all this positive energy but then that energy dissipates because you have to have like sustained interactions you know building relationships takes time and multiple contacts and we've never done that and so i think that is sort of the thing that i need to start focusing on is how do we have multiple interactions over a long period of time the polarization is not going to be fixed easily or instantly it's going to take a long time I mean, it took, you know, a couple generations for us to get here. It's going to take a while to get out of this mess. And you talk about storytelling and how important that is to understand each other and to create a conversation. In the public relations business, we are essentially storytellers for our companies, for our clients. How do stories help communicate? What's the function of a story in that in that regard? I mean, it's incredibly powerful because, again, and I'll Russell up the social science study that I was reading that says that essentially we're all using our personal experiences, our stories to come up with our ideologies and we find the facts to fit our narratives. Like we're all doing it. 
Yes. Even even those of us who believe we're so rational and reasonable, we're doing it on all sides, all perspectives. That study for me is one of the most powerful things, you know, underlying reasons why I push for telling stories instead of facts at all. I say, you know what, we're going to only focus on you telling us your stories because stories and personal narratives are the only thing that have been proven to be able to shift people in any, even in microscopic ways. In fact, these studies show that when you start throwing facts at people, it can actually push them further into their corners. And so I specifically stay away from talking about facts um, when, when we're doing these dinners. That's fascinating because I think that makes a lot of sense. And it brings up the question that I have had lately. There's all this talk about fake news and, and conspiracy theories and, and the truth. I'm beginning to wonder, what is the truth? Do you feel like in these dinners, there is a truth between both sides or, or not? Fred, you are asking like the right questions for sure. I just hosted, moderated, organized a conversation on Clubhouse. We were trying out that new app called Clubhouse right. and we called it the Symposium on Truth. I'm doing it in collaboration with this other organization. And we're gonna have a series of conversations about what is truth? You know, How do we combat misinformation, disinformation? It's really getting in the way of having a conversation when we're just operating in different information spheres. And so we're talking past each other. We're not even in the same page at this point. And so we've got to figure out how to at least get back to some kernel of agreement on what is the truth. Because in, in your experience, do both sides have a version of the truth that they believe is absolutely accurate? Yes. And it's so interesting that you said you avoided using facts because once you started talking about facts, people then disagreed immediately about what the actual facts were. The question then becomes, you have all these dinner parties and they're grassroots face-to-face. -face. Did you feel like you made progress in creating a conversation, a dialogue, constructive dialogue with those people? Yeah, I mean, I feel anecdotally, we made progress. I know that people wanted to, to continue the conversations. The fact that people were willing to engage in the conversation in the first place felt victorious. That felt like progress because, you know, as we said earlier, so many people were saying, I can't talk to that person. Why are you even sitting down with that person who disagrees? So it felt like a victory just to get them to the same table in the first place. <laughs> then there felt like a tiny victory in the sense that, people wanted to continue. I do feel that there was a small failure in the fact that people often would not continue the conversation on their own. And so that is a real challenge for me is like, how do we motivate people to continue the conversations on their own? Like I cannot be the central organizing force behind all this. It's just not gonna, it's not sustainable. When you were conducting these dinners, you developed a, a series of guidelines or rules, I think seven of them. What were the key things that you explained to people that were necessary in order to have these dinners be most productive? We're not here to persuade. We are okay. here only to, you know, only to listen and understand. That's very fundamental. These guidelines are really about how to, to be better conversationalists. And being a good conversationalist isn't just about listening. I mean, it's about actively sharing your own stories too. It has to go both ways. But one of the things I really kind of discovered is like how bad people are at listening. Like I think people think that they're good and 
I'm really becoming more attuned to how bad people are at it. A couple of things we often say is like, when you're trying to be a good listener, you should listen without thinking about how you want to respond. Yeah. Just only listen, that might create like sort of an awkward pause at the end of what the other person is saying, because now is your opportunity to process how you want to respond. But like, let's just sit with that and let it be awkward. And then the other quick one for on that point is to listen with the compassion with which you wish to be heard. We all want to be heard. So think about how much, how you want to be heard and listen to others in, in that very same way. Those would seem to be great lessons for everybody in any conversation. Did you have any experiences where the, the arguments just got so heated that it was almost off the rails or not? Not exactly, especially when we were doing the much larger dinners around the country, you know, when we we're in the museums and the libraries, you know, people were very much on their best behavior. And mm -hmm. in fact, I think that's why having a dinner party is actually a great mechanism for keeping things kind of in check because people generally understand that there's a code of conduct that you that we have around dinner parties and most people will generally adhere to it but then as you point out you know emotions start bubbling up and sometimes it's really hard to control those emotions so I, you know there have been a couple instances that i can recall around my own dinner table when you know for example i remember one woman said as if it was fact you know Trump, Trump is a racist. And then another woman said, she just called me racist. And everybody at the table said, no, no, no. You know, she called Trump a racist. She did not call you a racist. And so that brought up a couple of things. One is it made me realize that people identified so deeply with their ideologies that when you attack, you know, the one you're attacking it, you, the person, you know, even though I wasn't actually attacking the person. But anyway, so that conversation did get a little bit heated because it was very hard to, to convince her that nobody said she specifically was a racist. Isn't that, though, the basis of polarization that you assume that if a person supports Trump, that they subscribe to all of the things that he believes in, therefore you, you dislike them and the other side the same way? Is that the way it works? Yeah, I mean, essentially, <laughs> um, essentially, that is the way it works. And, you know, one of the things that I learned very quickly in having all the conversations, though, is that I had to start for myself separating the Trump voter, uh, you know, from the Trump diehard supporter. I mean, there are certainly a swath of Americans who are like diehard Trump or die, everything he says is the truth. But then most Americans who voted for Trump, they're not like, I believe everything he says, there are many reasons that they voted for him. You know, one being, well, I just couldn't vote for a Democrat. That's right. tribalism. But I get that, you know, Trump is not a good person and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So again, recognizing that there is a whole spectrum of belief on both sides across the political spectrum. Same thing on the left. Like I voted for Biden, but many, many things he you know, that he stands for, I do not agree with, but that those things get assigned to me anyway, because I voted for him. And so anyway, the point is it's, it's happening across the board. Well, I'd like to talk about that, the reasons for this polarization and, and, and some of the solutions. It sort of feels like that we are all reacting to what's happening in Washington, DC, that in this microcosm of the Congress, which seems totally dysfunctional and at odds, it sort of then cascades down into the population. Is it really the politics of Washington that's driving this polarization throughout the country? 
So interesting. I love that you asked that because, you know, one thing that's happened from sort of a policy perspective that has affected our polarization and that's related to your question is that, you know, there has been a consolidation of corporate power and, you know, there are fewer and fewer media sources, both on social media and traditional media, corporations have consolidated. So there's just fewer companies in general making the same thing. Amazon basically owns everything now. And so when we have that kind of consolidation, everything like becomes sort of nationalized in the conversation. Like we don't have local conversations anymore. Like we used to in the, I'm making air quotes, the olden days where you, you had local sources of information. You had a local store to go to where you would like meet up with folks from your community to have a conversation, to verify information and to see different viewpoints. Now it's all controlled by a few people. And that is actually contributing to the polarization of our country. You have found a a solution, but is a solution on a small scale inside of a very big problem. Have you thought about how you can scale up this idea so that would have impact more broadly? Absolutely. I mean, I think about it all day long, every day. One is working through institutions that already have like a larger network that we can tap into. For example, like we should work through, for example, the Urban Libraries Council. There's libraries all across the country that could be hosting these kinds of conversations if given the tools in in order to be able to do that. And in fact, when I was going around the country organizing these much larger dinners, a couple of them did take place in libraries and it was fantastic. And libraries signal, you know, a sense of nonpartisanship. They signal a community space. So that would be a great place. Museums, we did a lot of dinners in museums across the country. And I think that might be an option is to tap into the, you know, the American Alliance of Museums. They've already got the network. So I think that's one way that we're, we're looking at it. But the other way that I think is more relevant to our conversation is you know, changing the narrative on a grand scale. Like how do we communicate a different narrative than the one that's being communicated to us right now about polarization? I think that we can change the way people think about themselves and the way we are polarized. For example, a couple years ago, there was a study done by the, a group called More in Common, and the study was called Hidden Tribes. And in that study, they found that 77% of Americans are what they call the exhausted majority, people who are sick and tired of polarization and who actually want to like figure out a way past polarization. Why isn't that narrative the primary narrative, that the fact that there are 77% of Americans who are sick and tired of polarization. Instead, the narrative is, we're so polarized and everybody hates each other. So, you know, I don't know what to do with that information other than to say, we, we don't talk about sort of the positive message that is actually out there. We're always focused on the negative. I, you know, I think it's because there's more profit and power to be had in promoting a polarizing message. But, you know, how do we change that around um, and, and, and make the consumer want to consume the more positive message and not the negative message? And is there an application for this methodology inside of a business? Have you thought about becoming a consultant to corporations where you would help them find common ground among their employees? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I've actually already started dabbling in that. So I've got a couple of little consulting gigs going right now. They're sort of experimental for me just to see how I could adapt what I've learned in, you know, in civic life to sort of corporate life. So yes, absolutely. I think that this can be applied in all aspects of our lives, for sure. So the things that you have learned on the grassroots basis, you could expand to a much broader audience, you think? Yeah, I was thinking about another thing that you talk a lot about in that study is how businesses can take a leading role. I've been thinking about how to do that in sort of a sincere, authentic way to use, you know, trendy lingo, because I'm a capitalist, like I love business, but I'm also very aware of the economic inequalities that are driven by corporatism and the consolidation of money in our in a few hands, not just wealthy people, but wealthy, you know, large businesses. I don't know. I'm just very sensitive to treading that line. I want to tread that line, but I also want to do it in an authentic way and not in a way purely to drive profit, but to actually drive people, to put people at the center, not profit. Do you think companies should be directly addressing this idea of unification and harmony and polarization in their communications? I'm, I'm still a little bit torn by that. I mean, I think they should, if it, feel, if it feels authentic and it doesn't feel like they're just doing it to increase their profit. In, in your study, you mentioned this, and I remember watching that Jeep ad during the Super Bowl and having really mixed feelings about it because part of me was like, oh my gosh, like that's amazing. I can't believe that they're addressing this. Mm-hmm. And then part of me felt like, why are they addressing this? Like, <laughs> you know, it feels like kind of fakey fake, you know, at some level. And so I really struggled with that. And then I started reading, because I, I follow a lot of right-leaning, you know, Twitter and, you know, other things like that to see what they were saying and, and, and on the left too. And just that, that was a lot of the commentary that was happening too. Um, and I will acknowledge that the commentary that happens on Twitter is definitely the extreme polarized commentary. This is not the views of most Americans, but it just was interesting that both sides were struggling with the authenticity of that um, ad. So part of me is like, yes, corporations absolutely should be doing this. And then part of me is like, well, only do it if it really like fits your brand. Well, that's great advice. We saw a lot of people during the summer protests speak out about Black Lives Matter, and many of them were criticized because there was no authenticity there. They hadn't been involved in this cause until that point, and they were just releasing statements and support because their employees wanted them to or their customers. And as you said, if it's not coming from the right place, it doesn't land in the way that, that it's intended to. Feel like I can give the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, you never thought about it before until the largest protests in America started happening. Fine, put out your statement, but then what are you going to do to back it up? Like, I'm okay with you didn't do anything before, but like, what are you going to do now going forward? And that's where it really can fall short is, you know, we're waiting for some action here. And if you haven't done it, then I think you should be penalized. And one, one final question. We ask this a lot in our surveys. When you look into the future, what emoji would you use to describe how you feel about it? <laughs> the one that has the head exploding. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, you know, just like I was like talking myself in the circles around this idea of power and people, like 
I, you know, I think this is one of my problems and why I'm uniquely suited for doing this work is I can see all sides of the issue all the time. And so it makes my head explode sometimes. But also, you know, I find a lot of uh, uh, optimism in that, knowing that there are possibilities out there and that we don't have to be stuck in this one thing that it feels like we're stuck in right now. There are so many possibilities and it is up to us to start exploring those possibilities together. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. I, this has been such a refreshing conversation and so interesting and, and inspiring. And it makes me wish there were a whole army of you out there having these dinners every night and <laughs> of the week for all the people in America. And I think that would definitely uh, change the situation that we're in now. We're so impressed with the work that you've done. And I, I think that you are, you are finding answers at a grassroots level that I think can be applied for everyone. And it's, and it's illuminating, I think, for the people in the communications profession to just realize that the face-to-face -face communication and telling personal stories is still the most powerful way to get a message across. I truly believe that. And I really appreciate this conversation. I really love talking to you, Fred. So there's no easy solution to polarization. And as Philippa said, it's going to take time to overcome it. We can't rush into sewing up this great divide and expect a sustainable outcome. But just maybe we can start to heal the wound by having candid conversations in our communities, led by Philippa's principles, and perhaps a bowl of red and blue spaghetti. To learn more about the future of our industry, check out the preliminary results of our global communication survey at the link in the show notes. And thanks for tuning in to PR Future, a progressive podcast created by PR professionals for PR professionals. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode was recorded and produced remotely in Los Angeles by Ron Antoinette and Zazu Lippert with production support from Anthony Baca, Michael Bronstein, and Sarah Latman. And I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future.